Okay, guys, if you have uh, your Bible with you, open to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. As you're finding that place, I'll just go ahead and say generally with, with chapter 12 in Romans, we're coming to a major transition point in the letter, um, which in some ways might feel, especially in light of what we've been studying the last three chapters, feel like a breath of fresh air. We've just come through the most difficult chapters of the letter uh, but beginning here and for the rest of the, the, the letter, um, it, it's going to feel hopefully a little less mentally challenging than Romans 9 through 11 because it's here uh, that, that Paul transitions more to the practical exhortations of the letter. Uh, practical exhortations, applications based on all the truth, all the gospel truth that he has laid out for um, 11 chapters. That's not to say there's nothing practical about the first 11 chapters. In fact, we've seen that chapter 6 is where we found the first command. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. That's practical. Um, but um, you, you'll be able to tell beginning here that, that uh, and especially if you're familiar with these last chapters, there's just a different feel to them. It's just one exhortation after another uh, on, on all kind of different issues. How we ought to live in light of the gospel truth um, we believe as Christians, what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about Christ and what He's done and is doing for our salvation. Uh, what now? What, we believe that. What, how does that impact what I do today and tomorrow? And you can see, if you're open to this passage, you can see that this is a transition point in a couple of ways. Uh, for one, if you look back at the end of chapter 11, you'll notice that, for example, in the very last verse, Paul ends that chapter with a doxology for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's a common way that Paul will completely end his letters. Like it's a, he'll often end his letters with this kind of doxology. This is a way that he likes to conclude things. And so uh, you can tell by one appearing right there, he's drawing some section to a conclusion. And now he's going he's gonna to transition to something new. Now, the second way you can see it is when we come to chapter 12, you find that word, therefore, in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore. That's a transition word. I've, I've been talking about this, and now, therefore, based on what I've just said, now let's talk about this, and, and, and I'm build on what I just said. Not only that, but he says, I appeal to you. So he's, this, is, this, this already has a different feel. He's transitioning to making an appeal to them, a call to action, that is signaling a different direction. Well, we're just going to look at the first eight verses of chapter 12, um, which in some ways are just some general words to begin this latter section of the letter. What we're, the verses we're going to look at today, verses 1 through 8, uh, are going to set the stage for the more specific instructions uh, here to come. It, it, it seems like uh, Paul is laying some practical foundations here, some practical things that every believer needs to know, right, um, as they walk with Christ in the ways that he's about to lay out. So here's some things we need to know before we set out on these practical uh, admonitions and exhortations. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. And, and, um, and by the way, you can tell that just in the chapter, in the verses right after this, beginning in verse 9, 9 through the end of that chapter, it's almost like the book of Proverbs. It's just every verse is a different admonition. And that's the way, in, in some ways, this latter section is going to feel. But we're going to read 
verses 1 through 8. And what I'm going to find and what I found in these verses are six things that we need to know uh, to live according to the gospel truth that we've, he's shown us in Christ. So um, we'll read our passage, and I'll tell you what those six things are before we dive in. So beginning in verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. Prophecy in in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one, who, uh, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to, uh, to think and study this word that we just read, we want to first acknowledge to you our, our, our faith again, as we do every week, that this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word and Lord, we come to you again, and as, as we come to this word, would you give us mind, would you give us eyes to see the truth that you would have us to see in these words? Would you give us minds to understand it clearly? Would you give us hearts to embrace what you say through Paul here? Would you give us wills to obey whatever admonition you, you bring to us in these words? Uh, Lord, would you uh, give me the, the help that I I need to teach this word faithfully and clearly. Um, And would you give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying in the word. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you're taking notes on on these, uh, here's what I want us to take away from it. As I said earlier, there are six things that I I find in these verses that we need to know uh, to to faithfully and rightly walk with Christ in the ways he's going to lay out. Uh, So here they are. First, in the first part of verse 1, Paul's going to remind us to know your position. Know your position. This this will be part of his transition from all that he's taught us for 11 chapters. And he's going to basically remind us, don't forget any of that as as I give you these practical exhortations. Know your position. Second, in the second part of verse 1, Paul's going to remind us to know your purpose. Um, It's it's here at at the latter part of verse 1, that he issues his first command, telling us what is the reasonable thing to do in view of these mercies of God that we have received. In other words, it's here that he's going to start setting us on the right trajectory of faithful following Christ um, based on all that he said. He's aiming our life in the right direction here at the end of verse 1. So know your your purpose. Third, in verse 2, he's going to remind us to know your plan. In this verse, uh, Paul's going to begin putting feet to the idea that he put forward in verse 1 about offering ourselves as sacrifices to the Lord. Well, in verse 2, 
he, be, he begins describing what that looks like in real life. Not being conformed to the, to the world, but transform, you know, that, that bit. Then fourth, in verse 3, it's a, it's a strong, uh, it's, a, it's a good and needed word. He's going he's gonna to remind us to know your posture. He's pretty straightforward in verse 3 of just reminding us not to think of yourself more highly than you, should, you ought to think about yourself. Uh, and he's going he's gonna, to, I think we're going to see why that's such an important word based on what he said in verse 2 and also what he's going to say coming up in the fifth point, verses 4 and 5. He reminds us to know your people. He's going he's gonna to say it, it's not only foolish, but um, it's contrary to God's design for your life in Christ um, uh, to isolate yourself from other believers. That's just it's contrary to his design, and, and it is foolish. Uh, or it's, it's also, he's going to, in the way that he says it here, it'll also have this implication that it's foolish and contrary to God's design to involve yourself in a local church, but to involve yourself in, in such a way that there's still minimal impact and influence of other people in your life, right? Finally, in verses 6 through 8, Paul's going to remind us to know your provisions, which is really building on that last point. He's going to explain here why your commitment to and membership in the local church is such a vital means of God's grace in your life that will help you persevere uh, he, and, and, and fulfill the, pur- the, the purpose he's laid out for you in verse 1. All right, that's where we're going. It's a bit to see for sure, um, but we'll move through them as quickly as we can. All that said, let's dive in at the beginning and uh, go back to verse 1 where Paul reminds us to know your position. So look again at verse 1. Uh, it begins, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. And in those words, along with a few more that I'll point out in just a second, by the mercies of God, he's trying to sum up 11 chapters of what he's taught. And, and, and th- there is a lot packed into those words, mercies of God. Um, that, that's reaching all the way back to chapter 1. Uh, because uh, you remember in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul, that's where Paul began talking about how and why the wrath of God is being revealed uh, on all creation because of, uh, because of the sin and rebellion of humankind. Um, the wrath of God is being, is being poured out on all mankind because they, while they know the truth, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That, and, and, and for the rest of chapter 1, he talked about the sin of the Gentile world. In chapter 2, he said, the Jews, you're not any better. You, you know the law and you still walk contrary to the law. So that in chapter 3, he can very obviously summarize it and say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, and, and not only that, that all have sinned, but... All have turned aside. All have gone their own way. No one seeks after God. That's, that's chapter 3, verse 10. No one seeks after God. No one does good. Not even one. Right? Um, he spent three chapters of this letter carefully explaining and defending the sobering doctrine of sin, not, not only because it's true and that it makes the most imminent sense of the world we live in and of our own hearts, um, but it makes it undeniable that any good that we receive from His hand in our life is a gift of mercy. It's a gift of mercy. And beginning at the end of chapter 3, I'm just rehearsing. I'm trying to really 
hitting the high spots, what, what he's subsuming under this idea of mercies of God, beginning at the end of chapter 3 and running uninterrupted through chapter 11, he recounted one gift of mercy after another. Obviously, we don't have time to rehearse all that, but just in broad strokes, he, think about all the time he spent talking about justification. Uh, justification by, uh, because of the life and death of, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in our place, um, through faith alone, he used Abraham as the example of faith, like through faith alone in his promise and what he has done, we can stand justified before God, even though in practice we are still very sinful people. We can stand justified before God, which means he has pardoned all of our sins and accepts us as righteousness, as righteous in his sight because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us when we believe. That's our position before God that, that Paul elaborated on in chapters 4 and 5, which then led into chapter 6 and 7 with the gift of sanctification. Not only have we been declared righteous because of Jesus Christ, but He's given us His Holy Spirit who now dwells in us and, and, and makes us in practice what He has already declared us to be. It, 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 you know, this Justification is like legal language. Sanctification is like living uh, vital language, right? And, 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 and so chapter 8 within was like the high watermark of the, of the letter, just outlining all of these good gifts and, and the security we have in Christ from eternity past to eternity future. All things are going to work out for our salvation and for our good. Chapters 9 through 11 reinforce that none of the promises of God for the salvation of His people are going to fail to come to pass. God is going to be good on His Word. He always has been. He always will be, which is why chapter 11 begins with this doxology. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul opens this chapter with all of those mercies in view. That the, the, These mercies that assure us of our privileged position uh, before God by faith alone in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And, and by the way, when later on in verse 1, when Paul tells us uh, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, to offer our bodies as sacrifices. We're, that, we're going to talk about that in the second point, but notice he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Our English translations don't, of that verse don't always help us very much to see exactly what Paul is saying. Sometimes, because the way, where they put a comma and all that stuff, it's, it's easy to read this uh, and, and, and interpret it basically interpret the word living as meaning essentially ongoing and constant rather than a one-time deal like, a, like an Old Testament sacrifice. Uh, and that through this ongoing sacrifice of ourselves that, that we're striving to be holy and acceptable. That's not untrue what I just said. It's just not the whole truth of, uh, of what he's actually saying. Paul actually uses all three of those terms, living, holy, and acceptable, or better put, well-pleasing to God, he, 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 he uses all three of those terms to describe what the sacrifice already is. Already is. And we'll look more uh, at these uh, closely in, this, in the next point because Paul does use these words in more than one sense, but, but one of them is that, is that these, these things, we're, we're living, we're holy, we are well-pleasing God, this is already true. 
of our position before God. And just like we saw all the way back in, in chapter 6, what we're seeing here in this know your position first, what we're seeing here is another example that in the Christian life, and I'll use the fancy terms first and then I'll say it more simply, imperatives always follow the indicatives. Imperatives always follow the indicatives. And you're like, what? An imperative is a command. An imperative is a command. And an indicative is a state of fact. It's a state of fact. And imperatives or commands always follow indicatives or states of fact. Most simply, being precedes doing. Okay? Um, Who we are in Christ comes before what we do for Christ. Okay? This is one of the most important things that you can keep in mind in your Christian walk so that that you will guard against slipping into a theology of performance. Um, Feeling that our position before God ebbs and flows based on my obedience or disobedience or consistency of either one. Rather than it is a settled nature based on Christ's perfect obedience in my place. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Uh, but Paul doesn't end here. Paul reminds us of those mercies of God that we've received in Christ to springboard then into how we now live in light of them. When he says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, that is better understood as because of the mercies of God. Because of God's mercies to us, what now? What now? And it's here in the next phrase of verse 1 that Paul makes it clear that as you know your position in Christ, you also know your purpose. He says, because of God's mercies, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And I've already said that all three of those words modify the sacrifice that we are to strive to be. Um, And fundamentally, they are things that we already are in Christ. Um, And because they are already true, they uphold what we are called to do. We are, he says, living, which means we're alive in Christ. And and, and that settled reality that's already true, that, that is the... That is the foundation of what we're then to strive to do. Remember, that we saw this back in chapter 6. This is, what Roman, this is what we read in Romans 6, 12, and 13. He said, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. That's a call to action. Don't let sin reign in your, in your life. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members as, to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourself to God. Now listen where he goes as those who have been brought from death to life, right? And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Do this, do these things, he says, as those who have been already brought from death to life. You are alive in Christ, and so we can put off, uh, we can offer our lives as, as, as a sacrifice to God. We're, we're a living sacrifice. But he says we're holy We are a holy sacrifice, meaning we're already holy in Christ. We are already set apart for Christ, set apart in Christ. Then Paul argues that our lives ought to reflect that fact. 
We've been set apart for Christ. He said in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, which is another way of saying you've been set apart. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We're, not, we're, we're, we're set apart to Christ, not just for our salvation, but for His purpose. We're holy sacrifice. And He says, acceptable to God. That, that, that more literally is translated, well-pleasing to God. That's what it literally says. That is what we already are, is justified in Christ, but that's not an end in itself. It's not like I'm justified, so... There it is. No, it, Paul, Paul will say things, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. A justified man, he still says, we make it our aim to please him. Even though I'm already well-pleasing to God in Christ, it's still my aim to please him in everything that I do. And Paul says in verse, uh, in verse 1, this is your spiritual worship. The word spiritual that he uses there is, is better translated reasonable rational paul uses a different word in first corinthians 12 and 14 to mean spiritual he doesn't use that word here they don't really know why they translated it as spiritual but it means reasonable rational um and what he's saying here is it is eminently reasonable it's eminently sensible uh, that in view of the mercies that we have received from the Lord, that we, that we are living, we, are, we, are, we have been brought from death to life, that we are holy, that we are well-pleasing to Him uh, by His mercy through the Son, that we, it's, just, it's eminently reasonable that we would now, having received these things, present our daily lives to Him and to strive to live according to His purpose for our lives. What is that purpose? He begins to tell us more specifically in verse 2 as he reminds us to know your plan. So having told us to offer our bodies, when he says offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing, uh, um, when, he, when he says your bodies there, he means your whole self. Present your whole self as a sacrificial offering day by day to the Lord. And then in verse 2, he begins to flesh out what that looks like practically. I mean, Really and truly, he's going to be explaining what this looks like practically for the rest of the letter. But he begins here in this passage painting in broad strokes before he gets specific later on. So the first broad stroke that he paints is this one. Don't be conformed to this world. And, and, and the word Paul uses there, translated world, is the word for age or time period. Don't be conformed to the culture or the spirit of this age. Um, but instead, he says in verse 2, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And there's an interesting play on words there in Paul where, where the word renewal has the same root as the word age that came before it. Right? It's wor world in your, in your Bible, but I said it's age. And he's sort of giving this the picture of the mindset of this world is passing away. The mindset of this world is passing away. So don't be, don't be conformed to that, but set your minds on the, on the truth of the age to come. That's what he's saying. And be transformed by it. Paul is big on what we set our minds on. What you set your mind on. And that you 
and by a practical application of that or in our is is uh, don't don't train yourself to be so distracted at all times that you're incapable of setting your mind on anything you know he's big on what you set your mind on uh, he, he told the Colossians in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, if, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. How do we do that? How do I set my mind on things that are above? Not apart from His Word. Not apart from His Word. In the Gospel of John, in John eight thirty one. Jesus told his disciples, if you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciples. Interestingly, a few chapters later in John 15, verse 7, he said, if you, in, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. You see that, what he's saying? When we abide in the word, we abide in Christ and his words then abide in us. When we abide in the word, his word begins to abide in us. Uh, it's a transforming effect. That's how we fight the pull to be conformed to this age. Because the, the, the renewing of our minds as we abide in the Word helps us to see the priorities and the pleasures of this age for what they are. Um, and the allure of it is weakened. Because Paul says the purpose of this transformation or mind or mindset, of our mind or mindset, is that so we can, that's what he says in verse 2, so that we can discern the will of God. And then we do it by testing. That by testing, you may discern what the will of God is. That just means, what is that testing? It just means as you go through your daily life, as you, as you, as you abide in the Word, the bird, and the Word abides in you, and you go through your daily life, and because you're abiding in the Word, you're, it, it allows you to see things and think about things and make decisions about things based on what He has said. And, and, and as you do that, you are proving to yourself and to anybody that's witnessing that the will of God is right. Right? By it, Paul says at the end of verse 3, uh, excuse me, at the end of verse 2, Paul says we are able to discern what is good. What is well-pleasing to God? What is perfect or whole or wholesome or mature? Living in this age, we're, we're, we're already thinking according to the age to come. Paul would say it to the Philippians this way in Philippians 4.8, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is, uh, is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence... If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. How are we to know what is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise in the Word? That's the first step in the plan to daily present your life sacrificially to God, according to this text. As one who's been brought from death to life in Christ, holy to God in Christ, well-pleasing to Him in Christ, making it your aim to please him in all things it begins by transforming your mind according to the will and word of God but Paul knows you're going to need more than a new mindset uh, you need this but you need more than this and so in verse 3 he reminds us quickly to know your posture we don't have to spend a lot of time on this one because it's so straightforward um, and quite simple to see its purpose so it's con 
What he says in verse 3 is connected to what he just said and what he's about to say. If we would successfully be transformed by the renewing of our minds and resist the conforming temptation to the mindset of this age, that's going to require a great deal of humility. Always to submit ourselves to, and our desires and our inclinations to the Word of God. That's going to require a great deal of humility even to think we need to on a daily basis. Which is why Paul says for each one of us in verse 3, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to have so, a sober understanding of ourselves and our own weaknesses and our limitations. You know, the saying goes, no day is ever so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace, but no day is ever so good that you're beyond the need of it. Um, that's true here. But there's a second reason he brings this issue of not thinking more highly of yourself. Why he, there's a second reason why he brings that up here in verse 3. Not just to remind them that there will never be a time in this life where the transformation of the mind is never needed anymore, but to set the stage for the second broad stroke that he's going to paint uh, in, the, in, the, in the next um, part of this passage, in this picture of what it practically looks like to live sacrificial lives holy and pleasing to God. The first broad stroke was to know the plan of resisting conformity to this age. starts with your mindset being transformed by the renewing of your minds. But the next point is the second broad stroke in this, which is know your people. Know your people. This is another reason, by the way, of why we ought not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. Because if we do, we won't ever see our need for other believers in our life. Um, we'll just think we're all right. Um, we won't see the need for the life of the local church in our lives. He says this in verses 4 and 5. He begins with, notice verse 4 begins with the word for. For. It's another way to say because. We just don't talk like that anymore. I'm going to Kroger for I am out of groceries. We don't talk like that, but that's what it means, right? Because. And, 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 and when you see for at the beginning of a verse, it's answering the question, why? Why? Um, he says, so here's the flow of thought. Don't think of your, verse 3, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Why? For, because, and his answer is going to be, because when we were saved in Christ, we joined his people. We joined his people. We find his people in the local church. By the way, there is no biblical conception of a churchless Christian. Aside from the lone exception or example of someone becoming a Christian in a place where there are not enough Christians to even have a church. That's not where we live. But Paul says that to, to, to live a life, a sacrificial life pleasing to God, it will have to involve his church. Um, he says in verse 4 that you are a part of his body. And he says in verse 4 that every person in the church has a different function. But in verse 5, he ups it even more to say, you need every one of them. I need every one of them. He says in verse 5, we are individually members one of another. That phrase deserves more time than we can give it this morning. 
both in unpacking all that it means and all that it entails, but it would radically change how we think about church membership if we not only understood what individually members one of another means, but lived according to what it says. But at the very least, what Paul is saying here in the context of these opening words of chapter 12 is that to walk faithfully and sacrificially with Christ, it's going to require more than just you and your Bible. Your Bible is necessary not to be conformed to the spirit of this age, but to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You, you need your Bible for that. But it's going to require more than just you and your Bible as you read it and transform your mind. But it will, it will require the help of other people who spur you on to love and good works, as Hebrews puts it. And Paul explains why knowing our people is so important. Um, our, our people uh, is especially found in the local church because it's through them that God sustains and molds us into His image. In other words, knowing your people enables you, finally, to know your provisions, which is the last point here before we close. And we're actually going to have time around our tables. I'm so thrilled. Paul says that in the local church, you don't just have a multitude of people. It's not just a crowd. Um, but you ha- but with, with the people, because 1 Corinthians 12 is going to say over and over again, God has arranged the members of the local church. Like, nobody's, nobody's here by sheer chance or happenstance. God has arranged the people. Um, along with the multitude of people, you have a multitude of gifts by sovereign design. Um, and 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says that God designs both the people and the gifts for the common good of all. And Paul here itemizes just some of those gifts. These, a series on these gifts could, could be a whole series on itself. So hitting high spots here. Just notice how each gift he mentions here um, is, is aimed at benefiting the beneficiary of each of the gifts. Prophecy is the first gift mentioned. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. Prophecy. And different people understand differently the ongoing presence of this particular gift still today. But either way, no matter what position you take on that, Who could doubt that God still grants discernment to one believer to speak a word to another? Some prescient thought. Wake up in the middle of the night. Somebody seemingly random on your mind. It may not have some word of specificity with it, but you feel like you just need to go to that person and say you're praying for them. In other words, this, this, what he's talking about here is always a benefit to other people. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an impression, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a thought given to one believer to, to, to say something encouraging or needed to another believer. Then he says, service. Quite obviously that's helpful. He says, he mentions teaching. Te- teaching benefits both the teacher and the hearer. He mentions exhortation. Exhortation benefits the one who's being exhorted. Generosity to the one who has need and has received the benefit of that generosity. Leadership to the one who is wavering. Mercy to the one who is low and needs to be brought 
up. We just, we just have a rich provision in the gift of each other. As, as Paul would say to the Corinthians, nobody could say to another. Nobody in the church can say to another in the church, I don't need you. You can agree with that stated negatively in that way. It, it hits you a little different when you state the same thing positively. Every single church member must say of every other church member, I need you. I need you. That's, that's another reason you ought to get to know them, because you need them. And it ought to be the reason why, as you go through the rest of your life in the church, you stick it out with the church. And you, if, if, if there are, if there are uh, disagreements in the church, you have a disagreement with somebody in the church, you work it out because your family in Christ, and 1 Corinthians 12 says, you need them. You need them. You don't need to ghost them. You need them, right? That's a thought worth thinking earnestly about. Paul has, in these verses, set us up well for the chapters to come. As we come to the many admonitions and commands that await us. He's saying, don't forget the privileged position that is already ours in Christ. Know um, that it will be a sacrifice to live in the ways that he's about to tell you to live. But he has given us great gifts in the meantime. He's given us his word. He's given us his church to spur us along the way. Let's pray, and then we'll have a few minutes to... I'm not going to pray, and I'm going to pray at the end. I'm going to just tell you right now.